you are who you are. And the experiences that you go through aid and assist in shaping you and also aid and, aid and assist in how you navigate through things and why. And as much as you are your choices, you are also the second chances that you are provided to do. And I very much believe that as well. This week's guest is Jennifer L. Williams, our first guest of Series 3, a leading thinker and advocate for diversity, equity and inclusion. During this open, honest and expansive conversation, Jennifer discusses why diversity, equity and inclusion must be foundational in reimagining how we work, how we build teams and move forward to a more equitable society. In part one of this two-parter, Jennifer discusses growing up as an only child in DC with her loving but overprotective Panamanian mother, navigating the highly controlled home environment by immersing herself in writing and reading. This ignited her inner creativity that set her on a path to focusing on becoming her best self. Jennifer reflects on the other foundational influences and in people growing up, on gratitude, anger, and being responsible for one's own happiness, and the second chances life gives us. Jennifer eloquently expresses the experience of establishing herself as a young black woman in corporate New York, recounting her mother's sage words, You have to be twice as good to be considered half as competent. At the end of part one, Jennifer discusses her experience of moving to New York and the caring, safe environment she was welcomed into. In part two, we dive into Jennifer's career and journey to diversity, equity and inclusion. I hope you enjoy the vitality and vigour of Jennifer L. Williams. Jennifer, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Thank you so much. It's wonderful. And we always have to give a shout out and a thank you to the person that connects us. And we, in, in this case, it's Keith from Wearworks. Yes, Keith Kirkman from Wearworks, a dear friend. I am so grateful for him having made this connection. Very much a believer of Wearworks, wearworks.co. If you don't know it, please go there. Aiding and assisting those with sight impairments and other issues to be able to navigate their spaces better and feel more empowered in spaces. And I saw that they just launched their new set of bands today. I saw them on Instagram. Yes, yes. And I'm so, so, so proud of them. Continued success to Wearworks. Definitely, they're going to take the world by storm. They already are. Definitely. Well, that's cool. So again, thank you to Keith Kirtland for doing that. So before we get into talking about your life, and I've described you looking at your your background and your LinkedIn and what you've uh, some of your videos and your website as an organizational change agent. If that's not the right best description for you, then we can fix that later. But before we get into talking about where you are and the journey you're on and where you're going, we'd love to start with understanding where you've come from and the journey to where you are today. So perhaps we could maybe start where you were born. And I believe, if I'm right, it was Washington, D.C. You are absolutely correct. I was born and raised in Washington, D.C. I want to be clear, not in Maryland, not in Virginia, actual D.C. Occasionally you have to explain this to people. I was born Howard University Hospital, born and raised in uptown Washington, D.C., so northwest. The line between D.C. and Silver Spring, Maryland was literally a street away. So I would usually like run across the street and say I'm in Maryland and run back and be like, I'm back in D.C. because you're young and this is the fun thing to do. Raised by my mother, Dr. Celia Maxwell. I, you know, the childhood in D.C., I, <laughs> I'm laughing. I tease my mother a lot now. She was an extraordinarily overprotective mother. Um, very overprotective to the point where my elementary school, Shepherd Elementary, was literally three blocks away, down a hill, up two hills, and then there was a school. And I was not allowed to walk to or from school by myself. Until what age? Uh, 
no age. I did not walk to and from school (laughs) (laughs) for elementary school by myself. Um, And I tease her now. I I had um, a nanny or um, a housekeeper that was responsible for waiting for me so I could leave and then walking me to school. And like sometimes she'd make the concession and like wait by the sidewalk so I could walk in and save some level of my dignity. So I didn't get teased horribly. But like, yeah, there's there's nothing cool being in fifth grade and sixth grade and having to wait for an older Latina woman to walk you back down three blocks. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it definitely was not the best time for my social life. But again, you know, you're in sixth grade, you're in fifth grade. It could be okay. Um, I then attended Alice Deal Junior High School, had a blast going. I remember that was my first time taking the Crosstown bus to and from. So I felt very accomplished because I was taking the bus and then the same housekeeper was responsible for riding the bus with me to and from. So you didn't have a school bus? Uh, No. For deal, they used an MTA bus and just transformed it into one of the buses that would take us to and from the junior high school. So you can imagine how much of a hit my social life took being in seventh grade and trying to eke out my own level of autonomy. Uh, and still needing to wait for the housekeeper to get on the bus to leave. Why was your mother so protective? Mom is very much one of those individuals. And again, this is D.C. This is D.C. in the 80s and 90s. There were various things that were happening in D.C. My mom worries to worry, however. Um, And I know this about her. And I also know by virtue of both her clinician brain and her mom brain, if she takes out every threat in the equation and it doesn't exist there's then no need to worry about not being able to control the environment. And in a very real way, part of me utilizes that same line of thought in how I do what I do. But I also don't have a kid. I have a dog. So there's a completely Mm -hmm. different situation. Rocket might not be happy right now, but Rocket isn't being shamed by other doggy neighbors. Like, "Mm, your mom doesn't let you walk out by yourself. (laughs) So I very much believe it was that. It was that. So, you know, it was dicey. But I remember and continue to utilize humor as a gateway or portal to introduce myself to people. One, because I find there to be a level of humor in everything. And two, it's a great icebreaker. And I have no problem making myself a little bit goofy. And I also don't believe in the tenet of strangers. Like, literally, they're just people I haven't met. I will talk to anyone or anything or anybody. I do not care. It's like, hi, you're in my space. Let's talk. (laughs) People are just like, what? I'm like, yeah, you're here, here. Let's have a conversation. It just feels authentic and organic. After going to deal for junior high, I transitioned into Duke Ellington School of the Arts, which is an arts high school and also in DC. My art of choice was theater. Duke Ellington is a relatively small high school, so I believe there might have been 400 students total in the entire school. But it was wonderful from the perspective of being able to immerse myself in my my craft and my passion of choice, which is theater and still is a dear love right now. My high school trajectory, however, got a little differentiated. I was accepted into, let me go backwards to go forward. In DC, mm. there's a program called High Skip. It allows any person who is in high school that has completed most of their credits to attend one college course of their choice in any of the surrounding universities. So American, Georgetown, GW, Howard, any of those. Howard, however, had a tenant on theirs that if you did high skip through them, you had to become a full-time freshman. So I'm having this conversation as a 16-year-old about to begin her senior year. 
understanding that I could do this high skip program and knowing that I could either take one course elsewhere, I could become a full-time freshman at Howard University. What is high skip? High skip, H-I-S-C-I-P was the acronym. I cannot recall what it stands for, but that was the acronym for the name of the program. And I was like, well, hell, I love a challenge. Obviously, I want to do Howard. Obviously, I want to be a full-time freshman and a senior at the same time. Why wouldn't I do that? Becoming a full-time freshman at Howard necessitated the need to live on campus. Again, I've explained my mother to you. And I was very clear that while this was an amazing opportunity, there was no way in hell my mother was going to say yes to this. So you can imagine my surprise when I was accepted into the high skip program at 16 and moved onto campus that summer to begin the summer intensive that was to begin my both freshman year in university and my senior year at Duke Ellington School of the Arts. To this day, I still don't understand what made my mother say yes. My uncle, may he rest in peace. After I had a conversation with my mother, she was like, you know that he convinced me to do this. He was the reason why I allowed to do this because nothing else makes sense. The way that you are, I was like, there's no way you're going to actually let me live on a college, on a college campus? How? And, and to be clear, my mother works at Howard Hospital. So it isn't as if it would be difficult to see her. But just knowing how my mother was, I was like, this is, this is college. This is a whole different ballgame. I'm a pseudo adult and you're allowing this. This is amazing. So beginning university at 16, living on campus at 16, I finished all of my college courses during the day. And then I would return to Duke Ellington in the afternoon to finish up my arts credits that were outstanding. You can also understand how that would change the narrative of a senior year when you are actually a freshman in university. Things that would matter and matter a great deal just didn't matter as much prom. I was like, (laughs) I'm in college, (laughs) like yearbook photos and like senior skip day. It's like, I'm in college. But I mean, okay, I guess this is great. Yay. I'm interested to understand when you were growing up with this level of, I don't want to say control, but um, okay, controlled by your mother. Yeah. Were you sort of aware of this cositing and this, uh, that you were being in any way constricted and unable to express? Absolutely. I'm an only child. I remember being very angsty. I found journals from that time. My mother is smothering me and I am not allowed to be my own person. I'm 11. I'm not allowed to be my own person and explore the world the way that I want to. Like, you know. How did you express your rebellion? I wrote a lot. I wrote a great deal. I read a lot. I think that in order to navigate through that time, there was a level of escapism. And I was able to escape through reading. I was able to escape through writing, right? I also live vicariously through friends. One, I'm an only child. And two, I'm surrounded by friends who like could do any and everything in my mind because I couldn't do some of these things. Hindsight is definitely 2020. I understand in real time, you know, there's a conversation now around why certain people, like especially now, you won't allow kids to go to certain people's houses, right? Or there are just certain things that you don't do. And I understand that now as an adult, the need to be cautious and careful with children, especially the narrative now where people, you know, young people getting abused or things happening to them and not necessarily having either the language or the bandwidth to explain what has occurred to them mm-hmm. um, and not being put in that precarious situation to begin with. Like, I get it now. And I think that that was also part of my mother's fear. But it was difficult to navigate. I just wanted to be like everyone else. I just wanted to be free and like, you know, eat cocoa puffs. Oh, there was also no sugar cereal. I was raised vegetarian. What type of clinician was your mother? Um, my mother is still an AIDS and infectious diseases 
doctor and also the vice provost of for women at Howard University. And she's added a couple of other sparkly, glittery, dazzly situations to the end of her name as well, uh, which wow. means I essentially either am responsible for curing cancer or, you know, fixing the hole in the ozone layer to be on some level of comparison with her. Um, no pressure, <laughs> none so, whatsoever. So growing up with that, there is something interesting going on there with obviously a parent. We've interviewed other people that had high performing parents. Yeah. It's always interesting to look back at their backstories and what their parents and their upbringing was like. Absolutely. To understand why they were the way they were and their projections of their expectations on you. Yes. So, so that's one question I want to understand a little bit about okay. where she came from. Yes. But also, if you think there might be some element at play in there between how she was guiding you, let's say, in a kind way, conditioning you protecting you, whether that rebellion, that quiet rebellion you had gave you a sense, affected your journey to take you in a direction where you actually represent people and people's rights, people Mm -hmm. that are denied rights. And if that denial that your mum imposed on you has had an impact. I've never thought of it in that nature, but I definitely believe that to be true. Mm -hmm. Um, Even when I was younger, the ability to march to the beat of my own drummer as overprotective as my mother was, there was always very much a desire to ensure that anything I was interested in, I had access to. Right. So, you know, when theater became a thing, it was like, okay, then you're going to be the best theater person you can be. This is where you go. This is the training you get. This is who you have to interact with. There were the tickets to the Kennedy Center. I know the ceiling, like the back of my hand. I go so much taking in theater, taking all of that in. But it's also the understanding that in the belief of becoming your best self. I very much now believe, and I think the narrative for children as well has changed, right? The understanding that we're, we're now looking at children being their own people mm-hmm. and being able to say no and having more of an understanding that when you're wrong as an adult, you still need to apologize to your child as opposed to this is just the way things are, you'll be fine, right? I very much believe in the baseline of not being able to, apart from now being older and understanding why my access and proximity to certain things was not given to me because too much given too soon can create a different narrative as well. I also understand the fire that burns when you're not able to do something and the creativity that you have to employ to be able to get it out somehow, right? I'm grateful for, you know, oh, there is also no TV. So this is also the reading and, and writing portion. Wow. I got an hour of TV on the weekends. Yeah. So there was a lot of NPR. <laughs> I was the nerd that heard everything. You must have had friends going around to their houses and they must have been coming to your houses. You know, oh, going, it was grandpa. It was amazing going to friends' houses. I was like, you get to eat sugar cereal. Cereal with sugar in it, honestly, and watch TV. I remember binging for hours. It's also a running joke now. I have a deep love of animation. And my mother basically says that my love of animation is because she took it away from me when I was a child and didn't allow me the opportunity to like binge on cartoons and all of those other things. And I think she might be right. But yeah, I'd go to other people's houses and I was just like, this is how you live. (laughs) Wow. You have a TV in your bedroom. You can watch it whenever you want. Oh my God. Like it was, it was mind blowing. It was so mind blowing. But I will also say that nature versus nurture. I have a home. I have one TV. There's no TV in my bedroom. There's very little electronics in my bedroom. And that's kind of how I navigate through life. So thanks, mom. (laughs) You did that. Thank you. In regards to my mother's upbringing, my mother was born and raised in very much abject poverty in Panama. 
in Balon, Panama. She came over to the States after my grandmother, may she rest in peace, came over to the States as a house cleaner and then brought my mom over shortly thereafter. My mom worked hard, got through high school, got through university, decided that she wanted to be a nurse, went to nursing school and by both an interesting twist of fate and individuals who wouldn't take no for an answer found herself on a track to become a doctor. Went wow. to Columbia Medical School and that is all she wrote. Has had an amazing trajectory, has worked in the U.S. Senate, has had the opportunity to work alongside presidents, has aided and impacted policy as a thought leader and speaks on various topics that have to do with both infectious diseases and how health and healthcare align with Black people specifically Mm -hmm. and women as well. Extraordinarily proud of who my mom is and also how my mom is. This is the thing that I struggle to understand the logic in American immigration policy and particularly around the Dreamers. We interviewed Christina Jimenez and you look at the what you described as your mother and the impact that she's had as a, a doctor, a researcher, and from her background, why would you, as a country, if you want to remain the most forward-thinking, the forward-looking, the fastest-moving, the most innovative nation on the planet, you have to invite in the most unlikely array of people to bring together that diversity and activate it. And it's a history, it's a culture, it's the DNA of the country. And, and, and we're at this point where you're going, why? Why would you reverse that trend? Why would you inhibit yourself? And that's what's happening. And what you just described your mother is, a, is a, just a perfect example to frame what we're going to talk about in terms of diversity and inclusion. And- I mean, I'm also, I'm, I'm one of those people. It's interesting, right? The, the immigration debate is always one that stirs up a lot in me. My grandmother did it the right way, right? My mother did it the right way. They filed for citizenship. They got their citizenship. Then I was here, which also makes it very interesting to me to think if I decided to just drop into anywhere, I now want to be an immigrant of, I now want to be a a citizen of France. France wouldn't just accept me. I would have to go through that process or Brazil or, you know, even of Panama or of any of these places, I would have to go through a process to do those things. And yet the American ideal and standard and dream is built on the individuals making it great and the openness and acceptance of difference to get us here, which is why the current pervasive nature of this nationalistic push is so disconcerting Mm -hmm. because it hurts us instead of helping I also understand the need, right, to follow rules and to do things and to not accept anyone doing anything by virtue of it having been done. But I also understand the richness that we receive by virtue of being inclusive. Mm-hmm. And it definitely does filter into the work that I do now. Yeah, it's, it's so strange. I remember a few years ago watching that. There's a wonderful documentary series about the history of New York. And, and just watching that and seeing the sort of the the different through the different generations, different immigrants coming in and how they created the cultural diversity and nuances of the city that make it such a, a wildly exciting and powerful place and, uh, and e- the energy of the city. And for a nation built on immigration, it's, it's just, it's confounding. Ah, so my mother and my father divorced when I was zero. 
So basically I was born and then they were divorced. My mother remarried when I was three. My stepfather passed when I was nine. My stepfather, Paul J. Bacon, is very much the reason why I approached the world and my place in the world in the way that I do. He was an architect and he was very, very much a girl dad. Uh-huh. Right? And so even though I wasn't his, I was his. And he made every point an opportunity to ensure that I knew that I was special and important. And having that as a basis for a very solid foundation um, from a man and what I needed and what to expect, um, I'm grateful for. Because so many women don't receive that. And so many girls growing up don't receive that. So I'm, I'm so grateful. It was the part. Um, I remember, and I still have, like, this is old school dot matrix printer, like old school. You had to line up the dots on the side. He would make me little banners. Jennifer is amazing. Jennifer is love. And I still have them to this day. I'm actually looking at a pair of his glasses that I keep on my bureau um, to just remind me of that level of grounding and care. My, my real father, Johnny L. Williams, also a doctor. So I'm surrounded by these people, which is another reason why I don't to be one, <laughs> sorry, mom and dad, is is very much still in the picture. And I'm grateful for our renewed relationship in my older years. I know that growing up with an understanding of feeling a bit untethered after my stepfather passed and then trying to navigate my way and honestly feeling a bit angry and not necessarily having the type of relationship that I wanted to have with my father. And then both being older and a little wiser and understanding both with me work and internal work. That's a shout out to Landmark uh, for the ability to aid and assist in the level of transformation and understanding that you yourself are responsible for your own happiness. Getting to understand and know my parents from an adult perspective. People do the best that they can with what they have at the time. And I truly do believe that. And I remember for a very long time being upset because I didn't have the type of relationship that I wanted with my father. And it was always, you didn't try, you didn't lean in, you didn't want. And there was very little ability on my end to look at but what were you going through? How are you navigating these things? Now on the other side and being an older person, ensuring that I'm able to navigate this space with a bit more grace and understanding, right? You are who you are. And the experiences that you go through aid and assist in shaping you and also aid and, aid and assist in how you navigate through things and why. And as much as you are your choices, you are also the second chances that you are provided to do things. And I very much believe that as well. When did you do the landmark course? Oh, man, I put so many people through. I think I put Keith on it. (laughs) Landmark was about eight years ago. I remember being pushed to do it by a friend and I was like, I don't do pyramid schemes. I don't want to do one legal. I don't understand what this is. This is very strange to me. She was like, just come, just come to one of these forums and understand what it's about. And I was like, okay, I'll come. But I remember giving her a very clear side eye, like, if this is a cult, we're not friends anymore. And I'm going to tell my mama about (laughs) it. I don't do cults. This is very strange. And I remember going in and instantly feeling the energy and the vibration in the room go up. And also being clear that I was surrounded by people that were so self-aware, it was unreal. Like the ability to go, all of these things happen to me, but here I am and I'm still able to do this and navigate this way and make these choices because just because that happened doesn't mean that that has to be my story. I was like, you got shot four times in the face. You're allowed to be angry at the person that shot you four times in the face. You're not? Huh. I like to think that I am very wise and I've gotten to a level of non-plus. I'm like, no, you, you person 
I've gotten to this level that I apparently need to get to. And so I remember hearing that and being like, okay. And then I was like, I'm in. And they're like, it costs this amount of money. And I was like, (laughs) I'm sorry. I live in New York and I have ramen noodles for dinner often. I don't think you understand that, but thank you. And they're like, don't worry about it. Sign up. The money will come. And I remember very much thinking, and (laughs) I I probably said it. I was like, white person, maybe that's how the world works for you. But I don't, and they were like, the money will just sign up for it. And I was like, well, I need to ensure that there is an opt-out clause because I understand the money coming, but I also understand rent being due. So we'll figure this out. But also I want to make sure that I'm not on the hook for something. The money came. I took the course. The level of radical accountability that I received. What what was your reaction when money did come into your life to allow this to happen? I was incredulous. I'll be very honest. It made no sense. And I remember I was like, this white hippie dippy. What the, I mean, I'll go for it if this is what we're doing, but I don't understand that life works this way for me, but okay, sure. If that's what we're doing now. And then the money came and it was, I remember it was the exact amount that I needed. And I was like, okay, so you know how you ask for signs and you get them and you're like, can't really argue with that. <laughs> if, if that is what and how we're moving right now. I, I remember it was a check. I got a check for something refunded like a very very long time one of those like we owe this amount for not having completed this order or something i had either ordered something or was owed something it didn't come and i also this is <laughs> i'm terrible at checking my mail so this is also a note to me jen check your mail but this is also like a long standing issue i went to check my mail and there's like this nondescript envelope and i'm like oh okay i guess and i open it it's like a check and I was like, that's the exact amount I need for Landmark. You're not the first person that I've heard tell stories similar to this that have done similar courses like Landmark. That's why I asked you. Because yeah. it's, it's, uh, it seems, there does seem to be a pattern. It was unreal to me. It's, and I was yeah. very much like, really? Okay, I guess. But really? This is what's happening? Okay, but really? And so I, I paid for it and I went. And I remember the very first night. I, I'm also, if you, you couldn't tell, I'm not shy. Also understanding the fact that there are a lot of people there and everyone wants to have the opportunity to speak and they would only choose a couple of people. So on the off chance that I would get chosen, you know, I raised my hand and I got chosen and this was night one. And I remember having an issue at work. Something was happening. It's very dynasty. Someone's trying to destroy you. Why are you in my cubicle? All I want to do is good work because everything's real in your life when you're young and you're at work. You just want to get it done. And instead of talking about work, I started talking about my father and it just shocked me because I was like, that is not the trajectory I was going to take. And my conversation in my head about work turned into my conversation with my father and how we weren't as close and how I had anger there and I wanted to be able to move through it. And I was given an assignment and I was told to call him and apologize for making him wrong in the narrative of the story of my life. Wow. I was like, I didn't come here for this. (laughs) Like, I'm not the wrong one here. But talking through it and understanding that ultimately the way that you take things in is equally as helpful as how you, you know, synthesize and then make your own decisions. I remember calling my father and apologizing. And I remember calling my mother and telling her that I went to Landmark and I completed on night one and I apologized. And my mother's response was, what the hell kind of cult are you in? Do I need to come get you? And I was like, no, it's fine. I feel great. Everything is, everything is great. I'm grateful that you are my mom and I'm grateful for everything that you've done for me and all of the things that you've sacrificed. I think this is the first time I essentially felt like a grown up. Something about being adult 
being an adult, was being able to look at a situation in various ways and knowing that you didn't have to always be the victor, right? It's not about being right to be an adult. And somehow in my head, it's like, no, you're grown. So you have to be right about these things, right? It was the basis of understanding to be able to navigate forward and understand that humans are essentially that, people are that. You are in this life, in this body, in this skin, having an experience right now. And the nature of everything that you go through is and assist you up until the point where you are to be who you are and to think about the things that you think about and to find yourself in the experiences that you find yourself in. And being mindful of that and understanding that openness and willingness to ensure that you do more work to understand versus position yourself to be correct is more powerful. And up until that point, I was very... <laughs> it was, duty bound. I'm right. There's something to be said about being correct, right? I was right here. You were wrong. I mean, I'll accept your apology, but I want it to be known. You were wrong. And here's how, and here's why. And then afterward, and after that, really looking at what being right gets you. (laughs) Not much, (laughs) you know, it doesn't do the way of understanding. And it certainly doesn't do much in the way of being able to learn people. Just a matter of interest, um, if it was around eight years ago, where were you at your stage in, in your career at that point? And did it send you in a different direction? Or was I eight years? My God, what I ate for breakfast yesterday? You're asking all these good questions, Mark. I don't want to. <laughs> I was an EA. I was an executive assistant somewhere. And given more and more HR responsibilities. So it was leaning more and more into an HR role. I remember that. Um, but knowing that the environment, the environment wasn't necessarily one that I was the most pleased with and being really concerned about that, but also knowing both in the space of being in New York and being a young black woman, work looks differently for me. The expectation of what work will entail will always be different for me than it would be for you. Mm -hmm. And an understanding that this is just kind of how the way things are. I read on your site that where you said for most people work, uh, work is a workplace for others. It's a battlefield. When yes. You're, and that, that really, I think it sort of made me sort of stop and really think because I've never thought about, well, <laughs> I have thought about the workplace as a bit of a battlefield when you get into internal politics and that, but not in the way that you were describing it. And it made me sort of reappraise maybe the way I've considered diversity and inclusion myself in, in work. Mm-hmm. So I, I can imagine as you describing that, the, the extra layer of challenges that, that people have yeah. face and minorities, regardless of yeah. where you I mean, what? it's been drilled in my head from very young. I, I, I literally, my mother has probably repeated this to me 50,000 times. You must be twice as good to be seen as half as competent as someone who is white. Mm-hmm. You must over deliver whenever you give your word to something. You must be better at it than anyone else. And then, and, and only then will you be seen as potentially on the lower level of being on par with someone who's white. You must always do a good job. Like I hear my mother's voice in my head mm-hmm. right now. You must excel. You must prove yourself to be worthy and deemed worthy of the opportunities that people do not want to give you. There it is. You must be proven. You must prove to people that you are worthy for the opportunities that they don't want to give you. So where was it at what point? Because you said, going back to Howard, you were studying communications and, and, and media there, but yeah. you've, how did the sort of the the pivot go from a career that could have taken you in a very different direction and with your love of theater, which would naturally take you into something in the the creative field, you went into focus on HR? 
what yeah. was the what was the driving force there? So when I began Howard again, I was 16 and I knew I wanted to be an actress and I also wanted to be a reporter. So I went into broadcast communications because I wanted to be at an anchor desk. I wanted to be an anchor. I wanted to be the one that told you all the cool things and like gave the story off and then brought it back and, you know, said things and it was cool and it was exciting. And then a couple of things happened. One, the war in Iraq started and they started actually embedding journalists in tanks, Hmm. like the actual journalist in an actual tank. I was like, nah, I want to tell the story. I don't want to be the story. That's not what I wanted to do this for. That's just awkward and odd. And no, I'm not going to put myself in that level of danger. Also, my mother would kill me. And if I died, she would resurrect me to kill me again because I put myself in a position to die inside of a tank. What was I doing? there? Very clear question. So I just knew like synthesis wise, I could not do it. Secondly, I discovered that I was a really strong writer. And after understanding that going into broadcast while I was still going to continue with my degree in both broadcast and theater, that maybe being embedded wasn't what I wanted to do. I started writing and I became the life and style editor of the school newspaper, The Hilltop. And the love of writing only grew from there. And the ability to navigate my life and college life through the written word made everything that much more rich for me. So going in, being very mindful and thoughtful about what I thought I wanted, and also coming into Howard, my thought process was that I was only going to do my freshman year there. And then when I turned 18, I would go off to another school because Howard was my third safety school that I had selected and I had gotten accepted to all of the other places that I had applied to. And Howard to me, and I'm, I'm very ashamed to say this, as my third safety school, being a Black woman and having lived in Washington, D.C., there was a part of me that one felt I wasn't going to get anything out of the experience, right? There's no challenge if I'm surrounded by other black people. I have to be at a predominantly white institution, PWI, to be able to compete, right? I have to go to an Ivy so I can be taken seriously. I have to, I have to, I have to. I got to Howard and I was ashamed. I was ashamed at how ignorant I was. The rich breadth of history, the hallowed ancestors that have walked through the halls, the ways in which teachers take the time to ensure that they are grooming you and inspiring you to get the most, the history that you stand on. By being at Howard, I was ashamed and I instantly understood that I was exactly where I was supposed to be. And I was so grateful to that and for that. The other thing is that September 11th happened. And there was no way in hell my mother was going to let me leave D.C. to go somewhere else, especially when I wanted to go to uni in New York. (laughs) So apart from understanding and learning and feeling very deeply in my heart that Howard was exactly what I needed to be, 9-11 happened and that kind of put the kibosh on me going anywhere else. And I was like, okay, I'm fine with this. Navigating through uni, thinking you know everything because who are you if you're not going through university knowing everything? (laughs) Did you actually go to school? (laughs) And then getting to the end... And then realizing, and I call it my midlife crisis, even though at that time I was 19 going on 20, I became intensely aware that I hadn't left DC and it felt like an Achilles heel. And two weeks before I graduated from Howard, I had this, I was born and raised in DC. I went to university in DC. If I didn't leave DC, I was going to look up, I was going to be 87 and I was going to have a good enough husband and like good enough kids and live in a good enough place and be really close to mom. And there was going to be no challenge. 
right? There's going to be nothing. I, I wouldn't have proven myself. Like I, I was just going to shuffle along and I'd get a good enough job and I would have lived a decent life. And no one would say that I was a failure, but no one would say that I was a success, like a huge raging. And something about that really stuck with me and sat with me. And I was like, oh my God, I have to get out of DC. Like I'm stifled. I'm stifling. If I don't, I'm going to look up and I'm going to be unhappy. And I'm going to have like that psychotic break thing that happens to like 60 year olds when they just like run out naked and leave their families and like start a commune in Phoenix. I don't know why that's what my head went to, but like, that's what you do, right? When you haven't lived, you have the break and you go and like you raise cattle and chickens in a RV camp somewhere where it's warm and you can wear a loin. Like I just went places and I was like, I have to make myself really uncomfortable and I have to prove to myself that I can do it. I have to prove to myself that I can. And somehow proving to myself meant that I needed to move to New York. No job, no plan, just needed to go to New York. And I remember having this conversation with my mother, love her. To my mother, the very methodical, stoic woman in my life, that meant I was going to take the summer, right? And think about opportunities and find a job and find a place and then move. And then I was like, nah, you know your child. I'm moving in a week. <laughs> and she's like, no, you won't. Literally three days after I graduated all of my worldly possessions in a U-Haul van driving up to a room share that I found on Craigslist. And this is before Craigslist had people that would kill you on it. <laughs> um, driving all of my things in a can of paint in a van to New York. Where to which part of town? I moved to East New York because that was what I could afford uh-huh. with my money that I got from my graduation party and no job. <laughs> and that 15 years ago is how my New York journey started. Swore and happened. I would do it all again. I lived in East New York. I remember the neighborhood was questionable. My mother and my grandmother would visit me and my mother would cry. And she's like, this isn't how I raised you, Jennifer. There are drug dealers outside. And I was like, whispering it doesn't make it. <laughs> well, yes, there are drug dealers that are outside. They're very sweet to me. I also remember, and I say this, <laughs> Uh, rather fondly living in East York and that being my first like away experience and like the way it happened. I was just like, I have to get away. I have to do this for myself. New York was very much something that I had to prove to me. Knowing full well that ultimately if I fall flat on my ass, I have my mother and I can always go back home. But also knowing that going back home was not an option. This had to work because this was for me and this was me being a grown up and an adult and stepping into my own. I also remember finding the ways in which the neighborhood interacted with me was so gentle and so sweet. The, you know, there was, there was definitely an element of individuals who may or may not have been doing things that they shouldn't have been doing. That wasn't neither here nor there for me. It is New York. It is New York, (laughs) but I, I will, I will never forget. And I share this story fondly. I remember being maybe four blocks away from the train station and in New York, you do things late. And so I was like, yeah, I'm invincible. I'm 20. I'm going to take the train at two in the morning and then get off it at four and then walk into my apartment because why not? I'm grown. Things you wouldn't do now that I used to do. Whatever. I was young and invincible. We all have those days. And I remember one of the, the gentlemen that, that lived on the block pulled me aside one night when I was literally leaving around like one or two. And he's like, Jen, I probably had a nickname of some sort. It was very clear to people that I was not from around here. He gave me a number and he's like, when you get off the train, you need to call this number so one of us can come get you. Like, so we can walk with you. I was like, yeah, okay, but whatever, sure. So I, I did take the number. At this point, I probably have some sad flip cell phone, but like, whatever. I take the number, go, come back gallivanting. Obviously, I don't call. It's five in the morning. I'm grown. It's a Friday. Everything's okay. <laughs> I remember waking up the next day early, nine, to a knock on the door. It's a group of gentlemen. 
And the one gentleman who handed me the number is like, what did I tell you to do? <laughs> and I was like, you said I was supposed to dial the number. And he's like, what didn't you do? And I was like, I, I didn't, I didn't dial the number. And he's like, Jen, you're not from here. And we want to make sure that you're safe. Don't do that again. I wonder if your mother had got to them. <laughs> Mark, she probably did. She probably <laughs> you know, but like in, 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 and after that, hand hands to, to God, I I remember calling and literally within three or four minutes, someone being there to walk me home. And that was my experience until I moved there. I was there for about five or six months before I moved. But I never felt safer. I never felt more protected. I never felt more seen in an environment that should have made me feel destabilized. There was a level of care that was being taken. Like the neighborhood took care of me and I'm grateful for that. Mm -hmm. I'm grateful for that. I remember feeling that the neighborhood took care of me the way that I feel like I take care of people because people deserve to be taken care of. I very much believe that. Okay, we'll leave part one there. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player to listen and subscribe. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKaylee and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time.